merciful Father, we're thankful to you for your Spirit's presence with us, for your love and care for us in all things. Thank you for one another and for the fellowship that we enjoy. And we ask now that you make this time really fruitful and a blessing to us as we are seeking to understand and recover, to the extent that it's necessary to do, th- to do so, both the reality and the topic of mental health. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the topic for today is recovering mental health, and I mean that in two ways. First, recovering in the sense of, for those who now or in the future have struggled with mental health disorders or mental ill health of whatever kind, how can we recover? And then second, recovering the subject from the world of secular psychology and bringing it back where it belongs, into the church. Now, that is not to say at all that the mainstream psychological and mental health industry has nothing to offer. I actually think it does, which is part of the point of what I want to do today. But what I also want to do is to try and show you how I think the Bible teaches us and what I think the Bible teaches us about how we might begin to approach this topic. It's clearly an important one, just looking at that first heading, the prevalence of mental health problems. I was read up in reading a bunch of books on this. I'll talk about that later. Uh, Christopher H. Palmer, who's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, writes as follows. The World Health Organization estimated that in 2017, almost 800 million people on our planet suffered from mental health disorders. I think that's about 13 or 14 percent of the world population. Anxiety disorders are the most common, affecting about 3.8 percent of people around the world, followed by depression, affecting about 3.4 percent which doesn't actually sound so bad until you realize that, quote, rates of these disorders are higher in the United States with approximately 20% diagnosed with a mental or substance abuse disorder. In the United States, data now suggests that 50% of the population will meet the criteria for a mental health disorder at some point in their lives. That blows my mind. And that warrants some kind of engagement, I think. We can't ignore something that may affect half of us. Dr. Tom Insel, former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, describes how well this has been handled by the the kinds of organizations within which he works or worked. I spent 13 years at NIMH, he writes, really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realized that while I think we succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think $20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. So why don't you let that sink in for a second? The National Institute of Mental Health has spent $1.5 billion a year 
through to 2017, which is when, um, I believe it's 2017, when Tom Insel uh, retired. Maybe it was, uh, I, may, I may have that wrong. One and a half billion dollars a year and didn't, didn't touch the actual experience of American sufferers with mental health disorders. In fact, since 2017, the numbers have got markedly worse. Um, the World Health Organization figures date from uh, that time. It's got a lot worse just in six years since then. And so as I look at this, you notice first it's a huge problem. Secondly, it's a massive problem, especially in, in the US, and it's growing fast. And you also notice that whatever it is that is being done in the mainstream, it's not having a dent on this. Again, that's not to say that your general practitioner or your counsellor or your pharmacist might not be able to help you with something. Don't hear from me that I'm saying stop taking the drugs, but just hear from me that the people who prescribe them say they realise they have some work still to do. Now, since I've been here and before that, I've encountered uh, people who've struggled in this area. Um, people here, people who aren't here. And I consider it my responsibility to try and help. I'm firmly committed to the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, I'm your pastor, one of your pastors. And so I consider it my duty to try and put myself in a position where I can at least say something uh, credible and intelligible about this. And so I have spent a fair amount of time reading um, about this subject in the last few years and thinking about biblical approaches to it. Um, and I want to share with you my... Uh, picture of the current clinical understanding of mental health problems, which is illustrated in the diagram at the bottom of the page. Now, this might sound pessimistic, but I, I'm pretty sure this is what most, if not almost all, professional clinicians would currently agree with. It's certainly what um, Christopher Palmer would agree with in the book that I read most recently. I actually read this one a couple of days ago. Basically, the picture is that on the left-hand side, there are various inputs to our mental and emotional health. Pharmaceutical treatments, lifestyle factors, and various forms of counseling. Those are the inputs. There, there used to be other inputs. and Maybe there are still um, uh, some surgical inputs. I was going to put surgical uh, treatments as a separate category. People used to stick little thin knives up behind your eyeballs and sever the connections in the brain. I can't remember what they're called. And in some cases, people do still undergo surgery. For example, if they have severe epilepsy, they sever the things called the corpus callosum, the, the bundle of fibers that connects the two halves of the brain. But those are quite rare. The main treatments are pharmaceutical, lifestyle factors, and various forms of counseling. And those operate, and here's a crucial point, through extremely poorly understood mechanisms to produce outcomes. And when the outcomes are negative, they have clinical names. And so just to zoom in on these, 
a little bit more. The clinical diagnoses, which will be familiar to you from the popular literature, include things like anxiety, panic attacks, psychosis, eating disorders, PTSD, personality disorders, OCD, depression, dissociative disorder, bipolar disorder, ADHD, phobias, schizophrenia. That's just a bunch of headline diagnoses. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that uh, when people diagnose patients with any of these, they're not measuring anything. There's no swab, there's no blood test, nobody's measuring your serotonin level, it can't be measured in the brain, and most of it's not in the brain anyway. What's happening is they're assigning a label if the patient exhibits more than a certain number of a cluster of um, symptoms. These are labels for clusters of symptoms, and they overlap Sometimes you find people who um, they, they present as depressive initially, but what they've actually got is bipolar or schizophrenia. It's just that the full range of symptoms hasn't yet presented itself, and so the diagnosis will shift over time. That doesn't mean the diagnoses are unhelpful. What it does is to illustrate how little is really understood about even what is going on here. And that really hits home when you start thinking about the mechanisms. As far as I can make out, nobody knows, nobody knows how the pharmaceuticals, lifestyle factors, various forms of counselling, what happens to you and in you to produce the behavioural outputs or the experience, the subjectively experienced outputs. People have all kinds of theories. Uh, Christopher Palmer's theory, I was reading about a couple of days ago, is that it's all about metabolism. Uh, but there are other theories. It's hormonal. It's to do with neurotransmitters. Uh, and so the, the theory that it's to do with neurotransmitters, like serotonin and dopamine, then says, well, okay, well, if, if that's what's causing it, then maybe if we administer drugs that prevent the reuptake of serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, Penephridine, I think that's what the other one's called, then we can treat the symptoms. And it turns out that sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't, and always it has side effects, and coming off it is much worse than you might have um, ever imagined. But the truth is that nobody knows how these different factors operate within the body. It's very different from conventional medicine. We know what happens when we give you an antibiotic or when you take Tylenol. Yeah? But nobody knows how all these different factors contribute. They work sporadically. But what keeps happening is sometimes buried in the footnotes and sometimes front and center, the specialists point back to these lifestyle factors as quite significant for establishing... uh, well-functioning mental and emotional health. And I'll come back to that in a second. And, and I, just, I wanted to show you, though, I, I went through this thought process. What do I do? I genuinely considered doing some serious clinical study. This is a serious enough and a, a prevalent enough problem that I thought maybe what I need to do is really get a handle on the poorly understood mechanisms. I have a friend who's actually doing a PhD in counselling. He's a pastor. 
I think that's a great thing to do. I actually thought about doing a PhD in something clinical, not PhD, it's a master's degree or something, in um, something clinical, neuroscience, so to try and figure out what else is going on in the, the heads and the bodies of the, the men and women who are trying to help with this stuff. But then I realized, hold on, if, if the hundreds of thousands of scientists who've tried it so far and the $20 billion that was spent over 13 years hasn't fixed it, Steve Jeffrey isn't going to do a master's degree and figure it all out, is he? Well, what an idiotic thing to do, which is kind of a relief because I'm not sure whether I've got time to do a master's degree in neuroscience. So, all the, all the competence, frankly. And then it suddenly hit me, okay. What if, what if we, we don't need to understand the mechanisms? At least to make a start with this. Um, Paul Bloom, who's a developmental psychologist, listen to him a lot. Uh, he, he says, it may be that our understanding of psychology is like our pre-Copernican understanding of the hard sciences. It's like we, we, our current understanding of the mechanisms is so poor that it's like still thinking that the sun goes around the earth. It's that bad. Well, man, I haven't, none of us wants to wait until we have the Copernican revolution to sort this stuff out. But what if we don't need to? And I started to think, where might we go in scripture to figure out what to do, even if we didn't understand the mechanisms. See, Scripture doesn't give us the mechanisms of mental health processes, does it? It doesn't tell you what's happening to the neurotransmitters in your head or wherever else they are. But does it give us anything? And I want to invite you to turn over the page with me and I want to show you the conclusion that I've come to tentatively, which I think might be helpful. Under that heading, a biblical approach to mental health problems. The first step really kind of takes us sideways, completely out of the orbit of um, the conventional, secular, psychiatric literature. Step one, have you repented of the obvious sins? The thing that, one, that no psychologist is ever going to tell you is, like, listen, if you're um, married but flirting every day with a woman who sits opposite you in the office where you work, or you've got porn habit, or you're just kind of lazy, that's ungodly and sinful, and that will mess your life up. And the Lord might do that deliberately, like waving a flag at you to say, hey, shape up, this isn't, this isn't acceptable. If, if there are obvious, persistent, unrepented of sins, let's tackle that low-hanging fruit first, shall we? And I, I take it that's obvious. Right? Please don't come to me for some kind of complex solution if the problem is really simple. And though it may not be simple to deal with that, identifying it is really simple. That's step one. Just, let's just be honest about that. And so if, if you need to kind of tune out for the next few minutes and just focus on that, or head home after this and focus on that, then please do so. And give me a call if you need help to do so. But then I started to think, and this is step two. This is the, the thought that I had that was new to me and that I think might be helpful. Let's suppose there's somebody out there who's like, look, I know I'm a sinner, but you know, I'm, I don't watch porn. I'm happily married. You know, I've got a job. Um, I, I don't need to tell you where the body's buried. Everything, you know, everything seems fine, but I'm still depressed. Or I'm still highly anxious, or I still have panic attacks. What do I do? 
How does scripture address that issue? You know, what it doesn't do is tackle it directly. You know, if you think of those lifestyle factors, over the back, go back over the page. Just look at those for a second. These, these are all things that are within our control. This is why they're under the heading of lifestyle factors, things that we do. Diet, what we eat, drugs, tobacco and other things. Exercise, rest, relationships, loneliness, stress, sleep. Oh, there's tobacco. So drugs, I must have meant something else. Let the reader understand. Um, Alcohol, work, what the psychologists call meaning and purpose in life, which would mean knowing that everything you're doing, you're doing for the glory of God. I put that in there in their terms because that's a psychology diagram. We'll come back to it in Christian terms. Worshipping God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength in everything. That's meaning and purpose in life. Um, you should have one more to that, by the way. Um, daylight and darkness. Please, if you've got a pen, please write that one in, in the green box. That's one I missed out. That's another lifestyle factor which has been identified as having a significant contribution to mental health. Right. What does the Bible say about those? Sorry, go ahead. Daylight and darkness. You call it circadian rhythm if you want. I was trying not to get technical. But, but, but exposure to daylight and darkness. We'll come to why this is important in a second. Now, here's the thing. The Bible doesn't have a book, you know, the 67th book of the Bible, you know, psychological wellness and how to achieve it. Here's what it does. Scripture presupposes a certain cluster of lifestyle factors as the essential prerequisite to living a fruitful, faithful life in the culture in which Scripture was written. Are you with me? Scripture presupposes a certain set of lifestyle factors as a necessary prerequisite to living a faithful life and a fruitful life in the period of time between, I don't know, Adam and Jesus. What were those lifestyle factors? Well, just think for a second. You've got a rich and detailed biblical picture of the faithful Israelite, haven't you? Just think of, I don't know, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, um, the narratives of the books of Samuel and Kings, uh, just, just piece together in your mind. Think of the law, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. What's a faithful man going to do in, I don't know, late Bronze Age, early Iron Age Israel? Let me give you a picture of him. The faithful man is probably a manual worker, farmer or craftsman. Therefore, he gets lots of exercise, just automatically, and he works hard at something which, though demanding, is not out of reach for him. It's what um, Mikhailichik sent me highly uh, calls the work that produces flow, the work that you get absorbed in and you can make progress in. It's not easy. It's demanding enough to demand your full attention and you get absorbed in it. He'd have to provide for his family, because godly faithful man, which gives him both the kind of relational depth and a purpose a way of serving Christ by serving his family. 
Because he's working hard, he automatically is completely exhausted by the end of the day. Uh, and so he'd sleep well, and that sleep will be aided by the fact that he's not sitting up until half past ten at night or eleven or twelve or two in the morning looking at his smartphone. Because smartphones didn't exist back then. Amazing, isn't it? I don't know how they survived. But somehow, some of our forefathers in the faith managed to live really fruitful lives without a Facebook account. I don't know how they did it. I don't know if even the food counted if they hadn't taken a photo of it. But anyway, they... they so, exercise, work, um, uh, relationships, a tough job, but one that they can do, sleep, the right levels of exposure to daylight and darkness. When it's dark, it's dark. And the only light available is oil lamps, which are expensive, or candles, while candles haven't been invented. Which also helps with circadian rhythm. Also, interestingly, it helps with your diet. If you don't sleep properly, then when you wake up, you're you have cravings for uh, sugary and high-fat foods. Um, Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep. You can read that. You're laughing, right? Because you know this. Late-night essay crisis, you get up, you eat 15 donuts, And your brothers come down and they're like, where's the donuts gone? It's like, Jacob, all-nighter. <laughs> right? Uh, but they didn't eat junk food. They didn't eat donuts. They ate almost no sugar. But they did eat some, because honey. And it was considered a luxury. Uh, they rested. Well, you have to rest in order to do the physical labor. Um, and they also, because a faithful man, he'd have had a day off, the Sabbath, when he wouldn't have worked. Um, the relationships would not only have been nourished by his commitment to his job and the recognition among his family that he was providing for them and working hard to do so, but they would have been local relationships and embodied relationships. He would have got up early and gone to the men's discipleship breakfast. He wouldn't be lying in bed tweeting. Right? And that matters. Turns out that matters for our psychological health. To be physically with other people with whom we have relationships. He would have drunk alcohol, but in moderation. Firstly, because it's expensive to produce and hard to keep. Um, secondly, because uh, he's a godly man, wouldn't have drunk too much. Uh, and thirdly, because he had a physical, manual job. And if you're drinking too much alcohol, um, it's not very helpful for you physically. Alcohol is extremely high in calories, but doesn't have anything else. doesn't have any protein in it. Um, some nutritionists have called alcohol the fourth macro. We're used to thinking of protein, fat, carbs, right? That's where you get calories from. Well, if you drink, like a dozen drinks a week, you need to factor that in, because that's contributing 10 or 15% of your calorie intake. But it's contributing nothing else. And it's actually a poison, you know, that basically alcohol is poisonous. So, He'd have drunk it as a celebration in small amounts, like Boaz. And then finally, he probably would have laid off the weed. Just saying. Even if it was legal? Even if it was legal. I don't know, because probably he wouldn't have wanted to consume something that made him stupid. You remember that, there's that story about, about um, uh, the, um, the Native Americans who um, uh, Lewis and Clark met uh, various tribes as they're traveling across the American um, West and to the Pacific. And they took with them all kinds of things to, to kind of, for uh, Native American tribes whom they met, to try and, as gifts. And they had little glass beads and this kind of thing. And they, occasionally they'd give them whiskey. And normally that went down really well. But there was one tribe that really objected. And the chief came up and said, um, why would you give us a drink that makes us behave like idiots? <laughs> Okay, so now 
methodologically, try and understand what's happening here. This is not the Bible teaches that you should have a such and such a diet, such and such an alcohol consumption. Oh, it does kind of say something about that. Exercise and how much sleep and, and exposure to daylight and, and darkness and so on. The Bible doesn't contain that explicitly. Rather, it is presupposed in the things that the Bible does say in the culture for which it was written. To put it another way, if the Bible were written in 2023, there would be teaching about smartphones. And there would be teaching about the dangers of sitting at a desk for 12 hours a day, which is what I do. We'll just go through that list of things again and, and just consider, I'll tell you what I do. Right? I don't have a manual job. I sit almost all the time, which is about the worst thing for any of us. Back pain, etc., etc. Um, uh, I am blessed. I'm able to provide for my family, and it's a tough job, but it's one that I most of the time sometimes feel I can do. I, get, I, I find my work rewarding. Some of you guys, you find your work either too easy, too boring, or it's too much, and it's, like it's, it's tipped off one way or the other on that kind of happy medium. Um, I'm not always tired. I'm sometimes mentally tired, but not physically tired. So if, if I get home in the evening and I want to sleep, I actually have to artificially impose exercise on myself. Otherwise, I'm not going to sleep properly. Um, Kincaid is just down the road, which is just like so evil because junk food. I mean, it's great, isn't it? But it, it, it's just too tempting. So I have to discipline myself not to eat that garbage. And then I get home, and my wife is very good at hiding or not buying even kind of sugary cakes and stuff. But you know, I drive past all these junk food stores which call to me from the interstate, come and eat me. <laughs> I feel like you know, Homer Simpson, you know, she's a donut. <laughs> um, we probably eat a lot less vegetables and a lot more meat than... Guys in bronze. I don't know whether that's right, but just now rest. Um, yeah, we we rest certainly. I think I and um, you guys have a blessed Lord's Day. But rest is harder when you've got your you know your smartphone always banging on the side of your head, isn't it? Um, relationships. Well, we have all kinds of temptations to relationships that are not local and embodied. Um, alcohol is much cheaper, and. Many of us, not having physical jobs, are in the kind of place where we could get away with consuming too much of it. And finally, well, let's, like I said, drugs. Let's just, yeah. So, in other words, what's happened is that the technological advances since the biblical period have made a kind of life for us natural, easy, even instinctive, that deprives us of the proper lifestyle factors, which the clinicians insist have to be right in order for our mental health to be appropriately adjusted. They don't know how exactly. I certainly don't know how. The poorly understood mechanisms in the middle. But they're insisting that those things need to be right. Now, here's the problem next. Every single one of those headings is probably hundreds of thousands of research hours 
hundreds of millions of research uh, dollars, countless PhDs. Let's suppose you just thought about diet, what are you supposed to do? Paleo, keto, carnivore, vegan, vegetarian, intermittent fasting, what kind of intermittent fasting, um, skip breakfast, not skip, uh, you know, I, I have no idea. I'm a gen- I can tell you what most of the theories are, but I'm, not, I'm a pastor, not a dietitian. I, I don't have the capacity to... And I have my own views about it, but I'm not going to tell you with any kind of putative pastoral authority which is right. How do I know? Um, exercise. What are you supposed to do? Cardio, um, weights, mixture of cardio and weights, zone two, zone five, high-intensity interval training... I, know, I have no idea. Again, I have my own preferences and I have my own opinions, but I'm a pastor, not an exercise scientist. But I tell you what, if, let's make it easy, right? If all you eat is junk food, that's definitely wrong. If you get no exercise, that's definitely wrong. Now, there, there's, there's low-hanging fruit even here. You could compare yourself to, or rather, compare these lifestyle factors to the kinds of lifestyle factors which would have to be in place in a faithful Israelite in the days of Solomon, say, and ask yourself, are there any obvious divergences? And it's just possible that that might help. And so I want to invite you to do that. See, something has got to account for how Americans are four or five times more likely to suffer from mental health disorders than people in the rest of the world. And it's not that we're poor. I think what's actually happening is we have embraced more of the technology and we lack the maturity to handle it. And by technology, I don't mean smartphones, I mean food production. I mean... Um, an economy in which it's possible to make a living sitting down. We've, we've been blessed by enormous technological advances in everything. And that allows us to be dysfunctional in the way that we use our bodies, what we eat, and so on and so forth. And because America is the most techn- technologically advanced nation in the world, we are the ones most catastrophically affected. So what you could do is you could just go down this list and um, put um, light and darkness or circadian rhythm <laughs> there as well. Apparently that's quite significant. Um, seasonal affective disorder. Yeah? People get high levels of depression in very northern uh, latitudes during the winter. It's because they're only getting three hours of daylight a day. Well, if the only light you ever see is light that comes from these LEDs, then well, who'd have thought it? Um, so put that down, and then what I want you to do is just to go through and pick off the low-hanging fruit and see if you can either fix or prevent the onset of mental ill health. And what I'd be tempted to do, you know, for what it's worth, I'll let you go and do this in a second, once you've identified everything that could be off-kilter, I would just throw the kitchen sink at it for three months. In other words, what you might do is say, right, no junk food, three alcoholic drinks a week, quit weed, quit smoking, um, exercise five days a week, um, 
stop using my smartphone after 7 p.m., uh, sit down with my wife and talk to her a little bit more often, play Jenga with the kids, and um, hang out with the guys a little bit more. Um, I'll do that for three months. And then see what happens. I don't know. I'm not your doctor. I'm not that kind of a doctor. But it can't do any harm, can it? So have a go. Feel free to talk to your neighbours. If you need to borrow a pen, let me know. And go to it. Okay, guys. We are uh, up against two minutes before 10 o'clock. I can detect from the conversations I can see and the conversations I've been a part of um, that there was a lot of good back and forth going on. Let me just say a a couple more things. Uh, First thing, back to those lifestyle factors. I put meaning and purpose in life in those scare quotes deliberately. And the reason is because I think that is the... That's the kind of phrase that secular psychologists and psychotherapists end up resorting to to point to what they don't have in Christ. Um, Mr. Bennett actually said, you know, wh- where does worship and being part of a Christian community fit in this? And I hesitate to describe that as a lifestyle factor. You know what I mean? It's like, I know, let's worship as well. That'd be helpful. But... But in one sense, what I want to say is that all of this has a power, genuine power, insofar as it's located within our involvement in a healthy worshipping church with a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're blessed here. Like, there are many, many churches across the world where they can't get three or four guys together for a men's discipleship breakfast because there aren't that many guys in the church. And look at these, like, I mean, this is a fairly small one. It's like 60 people. We've had 70, 80. A bunch of guys couldn't make it today. We've got illnesses going around, that kind of thing. So we are tremendously blessed to have a bunch of peers here. And I want us, just in conclusion, picking up from what Mr. Bennett mentioned to me, uh, is to encourage you to see it within this context. I mean, this is the context within which we've had this conversation or we've begun this conversation. And I want to encourage you to continue it there both seeing the value of the instrumental elements of talking with each other and getting ideas from each other and asking questions to each other, and also the hard to... the the element of worshipping God in community on the Lord's Day where we, we can't see and understand the mechanisms at all what we're doing is we're drawing near to the one whom we cannot see. That's what Hebrews 11 means by faith. Faith is uh, believing or perceiving that which is unseen. So all of the stuff that we might identify about these visible mechanisms is to be brought to the Lord and acted upon in Recognition that it's he who is unseen, who is behind all this. So this is not a replacement for, do I need to say that? I don't think I do. Our relationship with Christ and our worship of him. This is how I pray he will be at work in all of us to safeguard our emotional well-being so that we'd be better dads, better husbands, better men 
better disciples of Jesus. Now it's just after 10 o'clock. I'm always torn. I know you've got up early, you've got here. Do we carry on? Do we keep going? Or do we say, listen, you've got homes and families to go to, you've got other responsibilities today. And both of those things are valuable. So what I'm going to do is, best of both worlds, um, we'll pray and conclude formally. But as ever, if you guys want to hang around and talk some more, I'll stick around a little longer. If that would be helpful, you can come talk to me. Um, it would be helpful if we can clear up the food debris before we go. But why don't I lead us in prayer as we conclude formally? Let's pray together. Merciful God and Father, we are thankful to you for one another. We're thankful that you open wide your arms for us. Just as Jesus spread wide his arms in death for us and now has poured out his spirit upon us so that we may be united with you through him. We pray that as we are so united, you would lift up our hearts day by day through faith and tomorrow in worship. May we be blessed by faith in ways that we can't see as we commune with you. And may we have a deepening understanding of how you are at work instrumentally in all these practical aspects of our lives so that we can discipline ourselves to make better and wiser use of the blessings that you showered upon us so that our emotional and mental health is preserved and strengthened. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.